Well, it's been about 10 years now since I uh, finished my one-year program at Cape and Ray Harbor Bible School in British Columbia. Um, I took a year between uh, high school and university uh, to, do, to do one year out there. Um, it was a really great time. I enjoyed it quite thoroughly. Uh, a lot of great memories from that year. Uh, over the 10 months that I spent there, uh, we probably went through about two-thirds of the Bible in lectures, um, which was really, really great. Um, quite a formational year. I don't remember as much as I wish I did from those lectures, um, but I do remember a few, like a few, um, a few moments. And uh, one in particular was uh, during the series on Philippians. Uh, there was uh, a lecture, guest lecturer in, uh, and I remember one of the sessions he did. Um, he had an illustration that was was fairly memorable. Uh, at some point in the session, he started telling us a story to kind of get our attention, uh, a story that wasn't true, but we didn't know that at the time. Um, he kind of told it as though it were were true. Uh, he talked about how that year, uh, during a time of prayer with the Lord, he had an experience whereby a vision or something similar, like God had revealed to him uh, that he would die within the year, that he was now in his last days. Um, and at that point, he had all of our attention in the classroom because, he, and he knew it because we were we were locked into what he was going to say next. Because you pay attention to a guy who's in his last days, you want to know what he's going to say when he when he shares something like that. And it, uh, and it, and that was the point, right? Like to to grab our attention. He was trying to show us what it might have been like for the Philippian church um, reading Paul's letter. Because they they knew he was in prison, um, and and maybe would have assumed that he was going to face death, uh, and they would have paid attention to what what he was writing, um, paid close attention to what he was writing, and for whatever reason, I remember that uh, illustration to this day, um, and it just has stuck with me. It's made me it made it hard to forget uh, the context in which Philippians uh, was written. And I thought about it this week as I was preparing for, for today because um, Philippians isn't the first time that uh, Paul said goodbye to uh, a church in some sense. Um, this chapter that we've come to in, in Acts chapter 20 um, and then spilling over into the first 15 verses of 21, um, Paul is, is saying goodbye to the church at Ephesus. Now, when Paul wrote Philippians, he was probably only a few years from his martyrdom uh, in Rome. He was in prison in Rome. Um, when we come to Acts 20, uh, he's not in prison yet, um, and it's probably 10 or 15 years before um, before Rome. And so we're still a little bit in advance of that. Um, however, he is on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows that when he gets there, uh, he's likely going to be imprisoned. And so as he kind of finishes up his third missionary journey, um, he's, he's, for all intents and purposes, saying goodbye to the churches that he's encountering, um, that he won't see them again. Uh, and so uh, we kind of have um, a powerful look into, into what that was like. I mean, it's an emotional time. They know he's going to Jerusalem, going to be imprisoned. So there's tears shed, lots of prayer. Um, obviously, he has spent like a, a huge amount of time with these people. Um, and so that's a, it's a difficult goodbye to have because um, he's invested uh, so much. So uh, just to kind of remind us of the context of, of Acts chapter 20. Um, so again, he, he had spent three years, about two and a half or three years at Ephesus. 
and that's kind of all highlighted in chapter 19 um, as he started his third missionary journey. Um, and then towards the end of chapter 19, there's an uproar, there's a riot in Ephesus, and we pick it up in chapter 20 when he's leaving Ephesus um, for kind of the second half of his, of his missionary journey. He goes um, north, up and around the Aegean Sea, um, makes it over to uh, what's now southern Greece, um, stays there for three months, and then starts retracing his steps back. And it's at that point that we kind of find out, okay, yeah, he's, he's determined to go uh, to Jerusalem, um, and uh, he's going to revisit some of these other places and kind of say goodbye to them. Uh, in, the, in the early part of chapter 20, um, there's kind of a humorous story about Eutychus, uh, the guy who's famous for uh, falling out of the window during uh, uh, one of Paul's sermons. Um, and then uh, after that story, uh, there's just kind of more discussion of the, of the journey and where, he's, where they're going. It's at that point that we find out that he's really in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Uh, that is Paul. Uh, he decides to sail past Ephesus and, and then sends for the elders to meet up with him at a town further south called Miletus. And so they, they meet up in Miletus, and this is where he kind of has an extended goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. Um, and, uh, and a lot of the content in here is kind of reminiscent of the sorts of things that he says uh, to the Philippian church in the, in the book of Philippians. Find that just uh, Philippians provides a little bit more context or a little bit more explanation of where his heart and mind uh, were at in that last uh, decade of his life. So after this this interaction with the Ephesian elders, we move into chapter 21, um, and there's just more description of, of Paul's kind of journey towards Jerusalem and some of the others that he, uh, he meets up with. Um, so he stops in at Tyre, has an interaction there, um, goes to Ptolemais, and then to Caesarea, um, and then finally uh, heading on to Jerusalem. So as we kind of look again, this is a section where, where Paul is saying, saying goodbye in a sense. So it's interesting and it's kind of the start of the end um, as he transitions out of the missionary journeys and into the kind of story of what happens in Jerusalem and leading up to Rome. Um, and so you start to pay attention. It's interesting to see what, what a man is like at the end of his, at the end of his life um, and when he knows that you know, it's, it's kind of the beginning of the end. And there's three things I want to point out about um, Paul um, that I think are worth are worth noting and worth kind of considering. Um, so in this whole time, Paul is is resolute in his call. Um, he is uh, secure in his position, and he is content with what God gives him. Um, and we see that in in Acts chapter 20, and it's kind of um, bolstered by what we read in Philippians as well. So we might bounce back and forth a little bit. But first, he's, he's resolute in his call. So what I mean by this is we see this with Jerusalem. Like he is, has been led by the Spirit um, to go to Jerusalem. Uh, and we find that out. But then we also find out that um, he's also being told by the Spirit that it's going to result in imprisonment. And yet he is still going. He is still, he's not trying to avoid it. He's not trying to run the other way. He is, he's resolute. I'm, I'm, I've resolved that I'm going to follow the Lord in this way. And he, we find that out uh, kind of in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, where uh, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. 
So he knows he's going to Jerusalem. He's not budging on that. And he knows that bonds and afflictions await. When he when he gets over to chap when we get over to chapter 21, as he meets different people in different places, they try to discourage him from going. Um, you know, they entire they uh, are are telling uh, Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. The Spirit is impressing on them that this is there's uh, imprisonment awaiting, and but he is he is certain that the Lord has called him there, and so that's where he's going to go. Uh, and then in chapter twenty one, verse eleven, you know he's visiting Philip at his house in Caesarea, and a prophet called Agabus comes and again confirms that uh, um, Paul is going to be bound. Uh, by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Um, and at that point, the whole group, Luke himself included, Philip included, seemed to try to convince him to not go to Jerusalem. Like, don't go, Paul, if you're going to be bound. But he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he, at this point, is is resolute. He, he is certain that he is following the Lord. And, um, and he is not going to be dissuaded from obeying his king, um, which, is, which is remarkable. Uh, the second thing that we see is he is secure in his position. And what I mean by this is, is that he shows no signs of, of panicking of any kind, like of, of wishing that he had done more, um, of needing to uh, control anything when it comes to the Ephesian church. He is... He basically says to them, like, look, I've done, I've done what I can. You know that I have never hesitated to preach to you, to, to tell you the truth. Um, he says that in verse, in verse 20, he didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Um, in verse uh, 27, he says the same thing, did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Um, and then he kind of has this apostolic handoff to them, um, where in verse... Uh, 32, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he kind of, he, he sends them, um, kind of commends them to take care of the church at Ephesus saying, be on your guard, be on your guard for yourselves and for the flock. But he's not trying to insert himself really just, just, you know, it seems content with, you know, having fulfilled the call that the Lord had given him. Um, he doesn't feel like he needs to accomplish a whole lot more or needs to, you know, go out and get more people for the gospel. He's, he's just content to leave it um, with, with the overseers and to trust the Lord um, in carrying the work forward. So he's, he's resolute uh, in his call and he's secure in his position. And he's also content with what God, God has given him. There's no signs that he's complaining about anything um, to do with this call to Jerusalem. He's happy, ready to go. Um, he is ready to even die, he says. Um, and then also just, you know, from a call perspective, he, he's, he's content, but also in a physical perspective. Um, chapter 20, verse 33, he tells the, he reminds the Ephesian elders that he never coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothes, um, which kind of echoes to me words in Philippians where he says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry, um, whether in need or or, or not, um, he, he is content with whatever the Lord kind of brings his way. So Paul is even, even um, like at the, at the end of his life, he is resolute, he is secure, and he is content. And this is like, um, I mean, 
he's Paul the Apostle, right? So he's 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 a he's a unique guy, and oftentimes we feel like he's kind of out of our league. Um, and and sure, he is a un, certainly a unique figure in the church. But this is this is remarkable to me. Like this is a man who um, you know he was he was basically a, a successful lawyer, right? He was a Pharisee and called like had his life set ahead of him, uh, but is called out of that. Um, you know, converted to Christianity and becomes, and what does he gain from it? I mean, he becomes an itinerant poor preacher um, who's goes all over the, the uh, Asia Minor and the, and the, the Roman world at that time and just gets um, beaten and, and um, imprisoned and rejected and, and all these things. And he's, he doesn't really have a place um, permanent home and he's, he's moving around all the time and, and yet he, at the end of his life, is seems totally content, totally uh, at peace with where he's at. If you if you read if, um, Philippians through top to bottom, it's it's just amazing to to hear his heart. Um, it's home to some of like some some very familiar phrases to us: to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Whatever was gain, I now count loss compared to knowing Christ. He says he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And he has learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Like this is an, an incredible attitude for someone whose life has been anything but easy. But he is content to follow the Lord. Um, and, and I think it kind of begs the question of like, how can that be? How can a man who's experienced all that and had such a rough go, like what's, what's in it for him? Why does he, why is he resolute and secure and, and content during all of this? And I think Paul kind of answers that question um, himself in in Philippians, uh, chap- particularly in chapter three. So in chapter three, he kind of starts out by explaining all of the things that he used to do um, to try to make himself righteous. You know, all the things he used to measure his life by. He talks about having confidence in the flesh. You know, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, you know, a Pharisee to the law, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, and he was found blameless. He's saying, like, I, you know, I had everything, you know, and I was seeking after all this. I had every reason for confidence in the flesh. But then he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So he's saying, I gave up all of that he's saying the reason the reason I can have this confidence the reason I can be resolute and secure and content is because I know Christ I gave up everything I was doing to try to earn earn favor with God beforehand in favor of knowing Christ because in him he has righteousness which is not from himself it's outside of him it's independent of his performance it's not derived from the law, from obeying a bunch of commands, um, but it just comes from, from faith in God. And, uh, and that's why that, the basis of that righteousness is why he can, he can be as he is, because he is secure in Christ. It does not depend on his performance or anything 
that he is he is doing. Um, you know, we all as humans kind of we we strive for um, and desire a sense of belonging and value. We want to know that we're worth something, that we're loved, that we have something to offer, that in some sense, like there's something right about us. You know, we want to know that we're we're right. Um, and yet many of us also kind of intuitively recognize that there's something broken within us, something that blocks that in humanity, that left on our own, we, you know, we don't have this sense of uh, value and, and worthiness. It doesn't come through that deep down we're broken in some fashion. And so many of us spend our lives trying to find the issue, whatever it might be, and to fix it. We desperately search for that thing that will make us feel right, valuable, um, cherished. And for a first century Jew like Paul, um, like this seems to all have centered around adherence to the law. Like if only they could follow the letter of the law, they would be good. The issue, their brokenness would be solved. They'd be right before God. They'd feel good about themselves. Um, and for, for some Christians today and, and maybe others in, in other religions, that might not sound unfamiliar, right? That, that it's this moralism that being good is what gives us the sense of being okay. Keeping one's nose clean and doing things for the Lord or um, doing things for God is the way to righteousness. And so we try to avoid taboos and we feel obligated to serve in some sense because that's, you know, that's what's going to make us right. And that's what's going to make us worth something is if we can adhere to all of that. But for others, um, you know, how we measure the value of our life might be more nuanced. It might be more subtle. It might be hidden in less obvious places. Um, what, what is it that you measure your life by? Um, what is it that I measure my life by? Is it, you know, it's, it's this thing where, where um, you find your heart saying, like, if I just have X or if I just do Y, then I will be valuable. Somebody's going to love me. I'll be worthy of love, admiration, and respect. You know, so what is that for each of us? Is it, is it the quality of our marriage? You know, if we have a good marriage, then we're worth something. Um, is it if I provide for my family? Then I'm, then I'm worth something, um, then I'm, you know, justified in my existence. Is it how much stuff you get done, your productivity around home, the success of your business, you know, how good of a listener you are, how good of a caretaker you are. I think we all try to find these ways to, to um, make ourselves feel like we're valuable. And like I said, for, for Paul, it was, it was obeying the law. But then, but then the thing is he's getting at in Philippians is that, and, and what the rest of the New Testament teaches is that we don't actually have to earn any of that. That in Christ, we already are worthy. We already are valued. We already are loved. Yes, of course, we're, we're all broken. We all fall short. We don't measure up. Not, not to our own standards for sure, nor to God's much less. But God has made it abundantly clear to us how valuable he considers us um, when he became a human in the person of Christ and was willing to suffer and die on our behalf. Like even though we're terribly broken, like he finds us terribly valuable. Tim Keller puts it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so if we measure our value 
by knowing Christ like Paul does, then we can have the same security that, that he does. You know, he says, he, I used to measure my life by all these other things, but now I measure my life by knowing Christ. And that gives me great security because it's not dependent on performance. It's not dependent on all those other things. It, it certainly inspires action, but, but it's not, um, but that security isn't dependent on, on uh, any, any action beforehand. And that, that would have given Paul exactly what he needed to, to, have, to, to have that resolve to, to feel secure and to, to be content. It would have given him boldness to preach to the, to the people um, that he was attempting to reach without any fear of, of the consequences. Because ultimately, like if he's secure in Christ, it doesn't matter what they do to him. You know, because he's got, he's got ultimate hope. Even if they kill him, he's got hope beyond the grave. And so he can have boldness because of his hope. And, um, and that uh, certainly, I mean, the, the times where he was persecuted wouldn't have been easy moments. But this ultimate security that we've seen in him throughout Acts, like, and, and now he's head, resolutely heading towards Jerusalem, um, even though like, everybody's trying to convince him not to go. He's, he's pushing forward, led by the Spirit, with boldness because he knows, he knows that ultimately like, Christ can't be taken from him. And that security that Paul finds is also the hope that he shares with his audience. Like the very truths that give him boldness to speak, um, they're the ones that he's trying to communicate to those, to those that he's reaching. And we shouldn't forget that you know, this gospel can give us boldness, and it can give us hope, and it can give those in Elmira hope as well. Um, there are plenty around us who are searching for the same ultimate things we are, for love, acceptance, a sense of worthiness and value. And the gospel gives those things in spades. Um, there are no doubt that there are people who are trying to desperately to be good fathers and mothers, successful business owners, savvy homeowners, and they're relying on those things to make them feel right with the world, make them feel worth something and valuable. And of course, we don't discourage people from doing that, but they're missing out on what's ultimate from peace and contentment that can come from knowing Christ. The kind of peace and contentment that can't be shaken if they lose their, lose their home or their business goes under or if tragedy strikes their family. We should learn to share that hope with them just like Paul shared it with those around him in the first century. And, and we should learn to uh, have the same resolve in our calling in Elmira to rest in the security of our position in Christ and to be content with wherever the Lord leads us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much for the, the uh, security that we can have in you because uh, you have um, given us your righteousness. Uh, and so, Father, lead us, we pray. Guide us, we pray. Teach us to be bold and courageous because of the hope that we have in you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.